I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2016 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Building Strip-Till Success with a Hybrid Approach, is being brought to you by Thurston Manufacturing, manufacturers of Blue Jet products. This is your first time joining us. I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to get it added. And subscribing will allow you to get alerts when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to Thurston Manufacturing. For more than four decades, Thurston Manufacturing has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found BlueJet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, BlueJet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. Well, experimentation is often the benchmark of developing a productive strip-till system. Whether it's equipment modifications, fertility tweaks, residue management philosophy, or a combination of all three, building a successful system requires researched risks to reap the rewards. While it's also easy enough to stick to a routine season after season, Persia, Iowa strip-tiller Bill Darrington would much rather be on the other end of the spectrum, learning, trying, and adapting to continuously improve his farming operation. For more than 30 years, Bill has refined a methodology that mixes no-till and strip-till practices, while also incorporating sensible, yet sometimes unconventional fertilizing plans. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Thurston Manufacturing, we welcome Bill to share his motivation and methods for intelligently pursuing higher yields with a hybrid tillage system. For those of you that don't know where Purge, Iowa is, uh, don't feel bad. There's people from neighboring towns that aren't sure where it is. Um, basically, go about 250 miles straight west, one mile off Interstate 80. And I'm 30 miles from Nebraska. So I deal with Nebraska's environment, which generally is not a plus. Uh, Generally, we dry out in the summertime. This year, however, we are looking beautiful. Um, Probably one of the best years I think I've ever seen on our farm. Uh, The hills, top to bottom, just look lush. However, don't worry about it. anybody that's called and asked about how we're looking. I always tell them, terrible, you know. So for those of you that, that don't want to hear somebody looking good, I tell everybody that's related to Chicago, we look terrible. It's a disaster. We probably will harvest zero. So I'm doing my part to, to support everybody. But uh, just a little bit about our operation. Um, we're oh, a little over 5,000, um, about 80% corn on corn. And the thing that we have found in our hills um, it just seems like we're better stewards of the soil if we stick to, to more of a high residue crop. Um, you know, when, when we get them 
three, four inch of rains that come in, in an hour or a half hour. You know, most of the flatlanders, they all get ponding. We get ditches that you can't cross with the combines, and we have our terraces all blow out, and uh, it gets ugly for us just in a different way. So we've kind of gone more to the corn on corn, and that has changed the way I've had to look at our tillage systems. Um, changed it quite dramatically. I farm in the lowest hills of western Iowa, which the Nebraska guys all say I've got all their topsoil. Uh, we're in the windblown hills. Um, you know, we've got soils that you can't hardly walk up, and they will still knock out 220, 250 bushel corn if we get decent moisture. Um, I had a friend of mine from North Dakota come out, and I took him for a ride in a pickup one day, and we're bouncing along this side hill, man, he's holding on, and he's all big-eyed, and I says, you know what we call hills like this in North Dakota? I said, no. He says, pasture. So, and we probably should too. Some of them are pretty ugly. So, um, we're well over 150 miles of terracing. Uh, my grandfather started terracing years and years ago to try and control the ditches. Like I said, I hate, hate mounting equipment through ditches. Uh, been pursuing higher yields for 25 years. And I put in there, been intelligently pursuing higher yields for about 10 because there was about 15 years there when I thought I was being smart, and I thought I understood what I was doing, but I was just doing more, more anhydrous, more this, more that. I wasn't seeing results. I was seeing limited plant health. Moron wasn't what I needed. And I always laugh, you know, moron is when you think you're going to increase your odds from what you did last year, so you put more on. And that didn't work, so the next year you put more on. And then you finally realize the true moron is you because you keep trying to do the same thing every year and it's not working. So I finally took it upon myself to get educated. Um, started going to a lot of seminars literally all over the nation. Um, I know more about almonds and fruits and vegetables than any corn and soybean farmer in the state of Iowa should know. But they're the type of conferences when you really start to learn about plant nutrition, plant physiology. The, the good things about fertilizers, the bad things about fertilizers. Them guys, when they're getting paid for quality, and they're getting paid for, for bricks, which is the sugars and the health of their fruit, they really understand how plant health works. So if you guys get a chance, you see an advertisement somewhere for some type of a seminar like that, uh, don't discount it. You know, plants are plants, soil, soil. So... That's, I come from a little bit different educational background based on that. Um, been working with, uh, like Daryl said, strip-till. We started that back before it even had a name. We were strip-tilling kind of back in 1980, I think we started. And primarily, we were just wanting to deep-band our nutrition. And we decided, well, heck, if it's down there, we might as well plant on top of it. So we set our planter up to kind of kick the trash out of the way and plant on top of our nutrient zone. And like I say, we did it for a long time before we found out it had a name. Um, we do quite a bit of no-till. Anything that goes on soybean stubbles all no-tilled. So we do what we can do. Uh, machine sheds pretty mixed colors. We got green, blue, red, just kind of whatever works for us. And I mentioned the fact that uh, I farm in the hills. I got a question. How do you strip-till that and stay on top of your strip? You don't. That's how you do it. So when I talked about a hybrid system, we had to come up with basically a field-by-field, year-by-year field, system where we could best manage that type of terrain. And granted, it's not all like that by any means, 
that's, that's one of my nastier spots. That's kind of one of the places it's always fun to take a flatlander or take a salesman and go for a little ride. And, you know, everybody's just damn sure we're going over. So, you know, people talk about rolling terrain. In our world, rolling terrains when you actually roll things over on the terrain. So that has happened, too. Not for a while. Um, let's remove the excuses. You know, as growers, sometimes we get caught up in what we're doing. Um, we've got somebody in town, or we have somebody blowing smoke up our hiney. That, oh, you're the best grower in the whole area. You know, nobody beats your yields. Boy, you can tell what you're doing. And we tend to come to some of these events and, and maybe think a little bit more of our, our knowledge than we should. And we get pretty proud. And there's, there's always them guys that want to be combative because they've got her figured out. But what we really need to do is, is shed that and just realize that we're all here. And Ray Rawson told me one time, he says, if you ever meet anybody that has all the answers, run. And that's the thing we need to remember through this event. You know, when we're dealing with tillage, we all have different climates, different environments, different soil types. What works awesome for one guy might be an absolute disaster for you. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind. You know, just ask the Lord to open your mind so that you can uh, keep your thoughts where they need to be. And these are just some of the excuses that we've heard over the years. And by we, I'm referring to Kevin Kimberly. Uh, Kevin and I are very good friends, and I made the comment, I'm not the, the first speaker, I'm just opening act for Kevin Kimberly. He, he does a dynamic job. But Kevin and I have done meetings together, and we got laughing about this driving down the road one day of all the excuses we've heard. Um, our soils are different here. Well, it looks good, but it won't here. Like I say, we hear that everywhere. Uh, our weather's different here. If it's so good, why isn't everyone doing it? Which I thought that was the epitome of narrow-mindedness. The guy in town says, how many of us have a guy in town that has all the answers? Maybe you are that guy in town. In that case, you know, sorry. By the way, I, I, I'm just going to call it the way it is. You know, if I offend you, I'm sorry, too bad. Keep it to yourself, I don't want to hear it. Um, my supplier doesn't carry that. That's just not the way we do things here. And that one I'm particularly fond of. I heard that one in Texas. That's just not the way we do things here. And that was coming from a farm. The guy was very proud to announce to me that he had the highest yielding corn crop in the county. It was 83 bushel per acre that year. And he was very proud of that fact. And uh, how can you argue with 83 bushel corn? Uh, my supplier says he knows someone that tried that. I've got too many acres to mess with that stuff. Well, maybe if you produce a little bit better bushels, you didn't need quite as many acres. I don't have the equipment to do that, which I do understand. Uh, equipment upgrades can be expensive. Uh, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. And that's one thing we do not want here today. Uh, chemistry, physics, biology, it's all the same, guys. We've got different things to manage, different things to control, but don't get caught up thinking, oh, they don't understand. You know, I, I see a lot of the equipment that is sitting out in the hall, and I think, man, that would be awesome. That thing would work great on flat ground. You put that stuff up like this, and then you try and take a 16 or 24-row planters and get that to all follow, it don't work that way. So we adjust. This one here, each one of us is, has our own yield-limiting factors. Knowledge, experience, apprehension, our environment, the truer secrets to higher economic, agronomic stability are desire. And that's one thing Francis Childs was very, very adamant. I, I knew Francis very, very well. And he was one of them guys that had huge 
results from his operation, and he changed all the time. He was always fishing, always looking. Implementation, network, um, ultimately, down to the bottom of your network needs to be bigger than your neighbor, brother-in-law, the guys in the coffee shop, or the information sources you have already used. Make sure you are not the smartest guy in your network. It's hard to learn when you're the one sitting there thinking you've got all the answers. You've probably pretty well hit a plateau, so don't get caught up in that. And this is an awesome place to increase that network. This, this is where we all grow. Speakers, we all grow. Uh, within, just kind of getting past the frills a little bit here, just start the actual presentation. Um, know what you're looking at. And this is... Root pits, I'm a very big advocate of digging root pits. I, I am a firm believer in digging them by hand, as you can see right there. Like I say, you really understand what you have on top when you start digging holes and look at what you've got underneath. Because you've got to remember that, that that vegetation you see on top is just merely a representation of what's underneath. If you get a little spindly, puny corn plant up on top, guess what you got for a root system? you better figure out why you have that diminutive root system. So it's, it's really important to go out and dig a hole. Um, take the skid steer, take anything you got that'll dig a hole. If you can get down three feet, you don't have to dig that one. That was about eight feet. I did that one for uh, an article for, for a farm magazine. and It was fun. It was interesting. But uh, like I say, they don't need to be near that exotic of a, of a pit, but it was very interesting. Um, the thing we understand with that is the yields that we grow are reflective on our soil environment. You know, it's all about root mass and root systems. That's why we started stripping it a lot of ways, is condense that nutrient zone, build that little happy area where we can place that seed, get fast, rapid root penetration, fast root growth, run into our nutrition that we placed in that zone, start building that depth of usable root system. And this actually is one that uh, Francis Childs picked up, and he used this in all of his presentations. I always like that because in my soils in western Iowa, you know, I've got places where I've got 10, 12 foot of topsoil. I mean, it's unbelievable. Great soils. Um, my grandfather used to dig wells, and in the bottom down below our house, he was digging a well for the neighbor. He was down 33 feet, and the old well digger dropped. And man, they stopped. What the heck did happen? They started kicking things back in and brought up a bunch of sticks that had all been chewed on, it was a beaver den, 33 feet down. So, pretty good idea how much erosion we've had, how much topsoil we've had to work with over the course of, you know, who knows how many hundreds or thousands of years. So, you know, I look at this, and I know where my yields are, and I'm somewhere in that two to three foot range. My yields aren't near where I have the potential for them to be, and that's, that's alarming. We'll get back to Bill's discussion shortly, but I did want to, again, thank our sponsor, Thurston Manufacturing and Blue Jet Products, for making this program possible. I also wanted to have Nick Jensen, president of Thurston Manufacturing, share a little about the company's history in developing strip-till equipment as efficiency tools and also offer a perspective on why the practice is primed for an increase in adoption. We've always been focused on uh, efficiency for the operator and efficiency uh, gains for our customers. 
and it was really interesting uh, one day when I was sifting through some old notes of my father's uh, back from, I believe these were dated uh, early to mid 80s. Uh, here was a, uh, here were notes on an application process that would put down fertilizer in the row, build a little berm, fumigate at the same time, and plant at the same time. So when we look at what we uh, consider the definition of strip-till today, it was pretty interesting that, uh, that our roots in strip-till go back at least that far in terms of the thought process. And actually we built a machine back then uh, that did exactly that. So it's kind of neat to see uh, the thought process clear back in the early to mid 80s to what has developed into uh, strip-till today. You know, I think uh, strip-till interest uh, really, uh, really took a turn, uh, a turn down when we had $7 corn, for example. We had a lot of farmers uh, who were out there who were just trying to grow as many bushels as possible because, uh, because, because we had such price, such high prices. And then it was, then it was, well, just, uh, you know, let's disc this residue under so we can plant the next corn crop right on top of it. And we weren't really focused on efficiency and we weren't really focused on, uh, on uh, decent management practices at that time we were focused on let's make this money while this corn while this corn is up uh, and uh, and the price is good now that we're looking at uh, now that we're looking at lower corn prices we've got a lot of a lot more guys trying to focus on efficiency whether it's fuel efficiency through the food field by reducing the number of passes through a strip till operation or it's uh, fertilizer efficiency uh, by putting the fertilizer in the ground right where the roots are going to or are going to find it. Um, we see growers coming back to the idea that strip-till really is going to be a part of this and uh, a lot of no-tillers are already practicing strip-till in some part of their operation for example and we see more and more people that uh, that are starting to go towards either strip-till or no-till as a way to not only conserve fuel but because it's, uh, it's, it's good stewardship and good land management practice. Um, in addition to that, uh, we do have some things hanging in the balance out there in terms of government regulations and, and uh, be it a watershed or EPA that, uh, that could really change the game for some of the ways that people apply fertilizer or some of the ways that they're allowed to till. Um, an example would be the three counties uh, just right around here in central Iowa uh, that are being sued by the city of Des Moines over nitrates in the water right now. Um, if, if we don't start to self-regulate our management practices with some uh, fertilizer injection and, uh, and strip-till type banding, it's, uh, we're gonna see, we're gonna see things come through the legislative and, and uh, legal processes that, uh, that we're not gonna like. So, as a whole, I think we're gonna see a lot, uh, a lot more strip-till being practiced, uh, particularly in the next three, five, and 10 years, just due to, uh, just due to the regulative and environmental aspects that we're talking about. Thank you, Nick, and again to Thursday Manufacturing for your support of this podcast series. Visit them at www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Bill Darrington on using soil amendments wisely, why soybeans are nutrient pigs, 
and a progressive approach to providing a sugar rush for growing plants. Soil amendments and nutritional correction are not the things that we enjoy spending money on, but they're the only long-term solutions to increasing yield and productivity. Don't fall victim to peer pressure. What I mean by that is a multi-million dollar line of equipment and a soil test that looks like a bankruptcy in the making. And I've seen that a lot of times in the course of consulting I used to do because guys got chasing iron. Chisel pulls too hard by a bigger four-wheel drive. Bigger four-wheel drive, well, I can pull a little bit bigger field cultivator. Bigger field cultivator. Well, now, geez, yeah, that, I, I kind of use a little bit bigger four-wheel drive. So now we're at 620 horse, and we got quad track, and we're pulling a tillage tool that should be able to get pulled through the field with a, with a big front-wheel assist. And we just keep, you know, we, we just keep doubling down. Things keep getting bigger, meaner, and nastier. I, I got big four-wheel drives, too. But uh, we don't have to do a whole lot of work. We can kind of coast through the field pretty easy with our tillage equipment. Stuff pulls pretty we- easy. We all like the new paint. I mean, we all do. I think everybody's addicted to the smell of new paint and new rubber. But uh, when it comes to economic times, it just might not be where we need to go with our money. We really need to sit down and talk to the banker and say, you know what, I think this year I'm, I'm going to do a little soil testing. I'm going to find out what I need to start correcting some issues instead of just buying the next new chisel. Long term, it will not get you there. If you're on rented farms, there's things you can do to band. Um, I got guys that are banding you know, 300 pounds of gypsum, dry band, and having great results with that. If they lose a farm, eh, they got some bands, but they're not coming out there with one or two ton. So there are options on rented acres. The gypsum top 30, this one I threw in there just kind of as a tongue-in-cheek joke. I'm not going to go through these, but I am a very, very big advocate of gypsum. Um, Have been for years. In fact, my first experience with gypsum was riding in a dry cart. I think I was about five years old, and Dad had me back there with a spade trying to kick it out of the spreader cart. And, you know, you're bouncing through the field, and you're stomping and kicking, and he's hollering because it's not coming out fast enough, and... You're getting your butt chewed, and you're not sure why, and you know, it, it's no wonder I kept farming after that. But uh, that lasted until Mom came for lunch, and then I had to go home with Mom. I didn't ride to spread her no more. But that was my first experience with gypsum. That was probably 40, 42, 44 years ago. 42, yeah, 42 years ago. So, I mean, we've been working on this product for a long time. If you're not using it, um, I think Dr. Norton says there's, only a few soil types that need gypsum, and that's ones that have ever been rained on, tilled, or produced a crop. So if you have a soil that's not in that paradigm, then you know gypsum probably not for you. Uh, benefits, like I say, these are you know, right down there at the end. You know, Ben Franklin sold it and used it, and yet we still have some of the university people will still try and say, well, calcium sulfate doesn't do anything. And that's coming from people that do not have to support themselves on the yields of their test plots. If the money they made come off their test plots, you bet your butt they'd be looking at doing some things a little bit different and promoting some different things. Not a big advocate on the universities. Nutrient removal. Um, when we're looking at the amount of nutrition that corn crops and soybean crops take, what I see with this is when we're starting to look at soil tests and we look at where we have good corn and where we have good soybeans, I've had guys tell me, oh, I got a farm, it'll produce 100 80, 190 bushel corn, pretty consistent. But daggone, you know, every other year you're out there growing 40 bushel beans. My only thought is, why the hell are you doing that? 
What it's telling you is quit growing beans. You can't do that. Just scrap the rotation. Soybeans are nutrient pigs. They take a lot of it. Basic numbers. Four times the amount of magnesium. Seven times the amount of calcium. If you've got high calcareous, high magnesium, high sodic soil, if you've got pHs over 7.3, calcium solubility falls right through the floor when your pHs get over 7.3. Guess what? Pretty good chance you're not going to be growing very good soybeans. Go out there, hit them with more N, P, and K. Ain't going to make any difference because you still got that seven times factor on the calcium. Soybeans need a lot of calcium. In these situations, I highly recommend corn on corn. You might not be set up for it, but you know, a little extra tillage and screwing something up on corn on corn is probably still better than 35 or 40 bushel soybeans. So uh, potassium, we all know that they take a lot of potassium, but what we a lot of times don't realize is that everything else has jumped up considerably. Um, nodulation. Nodulation is a biological process. Sure, it's dependent on uh, molybdenum and boron primarily are very important in nodulation, but so is soil air. In my root pits I've dug on soybean fields, I found nodulation one time at 38 inches. That far down, I found a soil uh, a nodule. And that's, that takes air, primarily nitrous ammonious gas, or as I like to call it, nitrous oxide. But uh, it takes nitrous ammonious gas at depth to have soybean nodulation down there. Once again, it's time now. Go home, take a spade. You don't have to dig a big hole, you know, something yay big around and that deep. And just get down on your belly and see what you got for nodulation. If they're all up in that 8 to 10 inches, guys, that tells you where your air is. That tells you where you go from aerobic to anaerobic. If crops could talk, what would they ask for? I like this one. Because for me, this gave a lot of credence to the benefits of growing roots. We all get blinded with N, P, and K. You know, it's N, P, and K all the way. When in doubt, moron. But when we look at what that plant is really asking for, we've got 4% of all of these versus carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And the thing I look at when I see hydrogen, for example, what did they launch the space shuttle with? Hydrogen rocket fuel. It carries a lot of energy. That's why they use a space shuttle. They use gasoline, hydrogen rocket fuel. Oxygen, that's pretty well self-explanatory. Soil carbons. These are all things that are necessary in that growing environment. Sometimes we take it for granted. How do we add carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen? And this is one that always gets guys flustered. Sugar. The analysis of sugar. C6H12O6. Sugars, it's, it's an energy source for microorganisms. And there's a lot of these guys, there's a lot of companies, and I apologize if I offend anybody that's selling a product, but there's a lot of companies that are really starting to promote these carbohydrate and carbon-enhanced um, fertilizers. And I'm happy to see it. But what they're doing is adding carbohydrates. They're adding that energy. You can add a pound of sugar for about 75 cents, a pound per acre. And it works. It helps. And I've had, well, yeah, but how do you know it paid for itself? At 45 to 50, 60, 70 cents an acre, can you set your yield monitor down where it's going to tell you whether it paid for itself or not? $4 corn, $10 beans, it's just a basic. When you understand what crops are after, when you know you're supplying these components, 
Are you going to let 70 cents and think, well, I don't know if I got my money back? It's a basic, guys. It's just what we need. It's not an NPK, but it increases the uptake. Um, and one thing I always like to ask, what does nitrogen do? And I virtually never get the right answer. Nitrogen supplies protein. One of the necessary components in nitrogen's conversion to protein is carbohydrates, i.e. sugars. When I'm strip tilling, I'm using 28%. We put in a pound of sugar, goes right into our strip till. We're forcing that nitrogen to be more efficient. We're taking that necessary component of protein production and assuming, instead of assuming it's in the soil, we're putting it right in there. We use it every time we spray anything. It doesn't matter whether we're pre, post. If nothing else, what that sugar does is it's a food source and it increases the amount of biological breakdown of a residue. Then worms and bugs come up there, sniff that, give it a lick. So, well, that ain't bad. They'll even start breaking down some of the BT stuff that they don't want to eat. It's kind of like we had a hired man that hated liver. He'd just bury it in ketchup. And you know, we're doing the same thing with some of that... Uh, GMO residue, that biology don't want to break it down. That's why this stuff's laying out there. That's why we're having to strip till and move all that crap out of the way. It don't break down. So we got to fool the biology and get them thinking, well, I guess I'll eat it. So that's one of the things. And I say, if, if there's nothing else you learn from me, which there may not be, I highly recommend trying that. And when I say every time we spray, every single time we go across that field, we put sugar in. Every time. It doesn't matter when. With the airplane, it just, anytime, the sources, basic sugar, you can use humic and fulvic acids, which are good carbon sources. Molasses, I get molasses for like, oh, I think it's a dollar eighteen a gallon, and we're using like eight ounces per acre. So, I mean, we're talking really cheap. The thing on molasses is high in iron, but it's 43% soluble sugars. Um, compost tea, which, eh, it's going to be a little bit more spendy. And when I talk about sugar, when you put 300 pounds in a shopping cart, that damn thing pushes hard. <laughs> My lovely wife had a hell of a time pushing that to pick up for me. And by the way, I'm going to be married 16 years come Friday. Thank you, honey. So, anyway, that's, that's what I have done. In fact, we were spraying with an airplane a few years ago, and I ran out of sugar, and I went into the grocery store. And I bought all of the RC Cola, and then there were some other cheap-labeled soda. And I bought all the two-liter bottles. I had one 1,000-gallon pull-behind carts behind the pickup. And I was out in the parking lot dumping all of them in the tank. And I walked back in to get my five-cent refund on all the bottles. <laughs> what? It's five cents. And, uh, well, you Michigan guys, ten cents. But uh, the lady behind the counter says, do you know what you're doing? Not really, but I'm going to try it. But what we did with that pop, think about what's in there. Become a label reader. Carbon dioxide, sugars, phosphoric acid, caffeine, plant growth hormone. We have seen some really amazing things with pop. Coca-Cola. A friend of mine did some testing down in uh, Australia on wheat. And there was a company down there that had some fancy foliar that they were going to use. 
And they did a strip with this company's fancy, you know, it was like one of $15 an acre foliars. And then they came in and did a strip with Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola beat it by three-tenths of a bushel. Simple. But you've got to be a label reader. If you really want to get kinky, throw some Gatorade in there. Gatorade has MK, or MKP, monopotassium phosphate. So you're actually getting a little bit of potassium out of that. So, I mean, there's always a lot of options. And the heck of it was, I mean, all them two-liter bottles, I mean, I was getting them for like 79 cents. But that's how desperate I was to make sure I had energy in that mix going in that airplane. I didn't care. I couldn't stand the thought of that plane making that last load without some sort of sugar or energy. So, any of you that think, well, that just doesn't make sense, I've heard that before. Sugar does not make sense. Well, you apparently do not understand photosynthesis if you do not think sugars make sense. One of the things Ray Rawson does up in northern Michigan where they're at is when it's getting fall and they're starting to talk about an early frost, he comes in with about a quart per acre of 28% and about one to two pounds of sugar. And what they're doing is they're applying antifreeze. It's basically antifreeze to them plants. It gets that energy up, gets them sugars up in them plants, and they can kind of freeze-proof them plants. He says if it kind of stays from 28 and up, we're good. He says, yeah, it gets down 25, 26, we may have some problems. But it's, it's a buffer. It's just antifreeze. So interest, increasing energy. But like I say, I mean, if you think that what I'm talking about is just foolish and doesn't make sense, then you ought to brush up on, on what photosynthesis is. Nutrient banding. I'm going to switch gears here just a little bit. This is more kind of what we should be talking about. Um, do not expect amazing yields from merely banding your fertilizer. If you choose to use the same old high-salt, high-toxic, cheap fertilizers, i.e. anhydrous ammonia and 0060, don't expect a whole lot of things to change. Banding increases the concentration of what we're after, the desired nutrients. It also increases the toxicity of the crap that's in there. The reason I call out 0060 and anhydrous is because they're both toxic, period. And I usually get a lot of heat from that because, you know, I've had guys, I mean, you can insult their mother and they'll look the other way, but you go after anhydrous ammonia, and boy, they get all kinds of upset. But your choice in fertilizers can be the difference between a system working and having devastating failure. And by devastating, I mean like, having the ammonia volatilize and kill your, your germination. That ain't good. Kevin and I have both seen that situation happen. Farming the zone, improving the physical status of soil. This one here came out in Fluid Journal quite a few years ago. And ultimately, guys, this is what we're talking about this weekend or this week, is that banding concept. Personally, I may throw some barbs here that might get me in the hot seat as soon as I step off this stage. But I, for the love of God, do not understand strip-till without banning nutrients. I don't get it. Why bother? When you know you're making that little happy trail where that planter's going to run, why you would not put your nutrition somewhere in there is absolutely beyond me. I don't get it. I mean, what's the point? You might as well just go out there and do all your tillage stuff and just broadcast and just call it good. When you can reduce the amount of nutrition that you're using by 25 to 30% by banding it in that seed zone, in that root zone, what part of that do you not like? We're all going to be getting nutrient management strategies shoved down our throat. 
We're going to get it one of these days. And when we can start understanding how important this is, to be able to have that concentration where we know we're planting, where we know we're going to have root growth, and to not bother using that uh, technology, I, I, I just don't get it. Strip till's awesome. The banding and the nutrition's option, awesome. I don't understand one without the other. Um, what I'm using, I use a little bit of everything. We use a full NPK. Um, we're running a mix here. I get this from Mark Beard down in Indiana. It's a, a 2.16.14 um, and 0028. Uh, primarily, that's a potassium thiosol type mix. Um, chelated zinc, we usually run a, a quart to, usually a quart per acre of chelated zinc. Uh, the PFE 2000, which is a combination of micronutrient, trace minerals, organic acids. Uh, PFE is just kind of, it's, it's kind of one of them agronomic aspirin, it's kind of good for whatever ails you type thing. But we run two tubes on the knife. That product comes out of one tube. Out of the front and primary tube, we run our 28%, the, the ATS. Uh, we'll usually run about 10 gallon of 729.5. And by and large, unless we have some farms with some issues, we'll run usually 7 to 10 gallon of be about 5 of each one of these. And then with 729.5, we usually run 10 gallon of that. And for the most part, that's pretty much the extent of our, our P and K. But we're putting that at depth, around 8 inches deep. We know that that root growth is going to be roughly at a 35-degree angle. So I don't have to be perfect, and then roots are going to run into that happy spot. So, and then the question always comes up, well, yeah, but you go liquid or dry. Okay, that's my theory. Plants suck, they don't chew. Um, I've seen soil pits in areas of the country where it was real dry, and I've seen fall applied dry, I've seen spring applied dry. You go out and dig a root pit in August or July, and you still see them granules laying down there. Ultimately, it ended up being toxic because it was salty enough that the plant roots basically got to it. I've actually seen roots that went down, hit that, and grew sideways. Some of them, they'll actually turn and start trying to get away from it. So that might be a pretty good sign you're not using the right type of nutrition when you see your plant roots growing away from it. So another reason to dig a, dig a root pit, advantages of anhydrous ammonia. Makes a good, long-lasting runway. And don't take this for sarcasm. Math just isn't the same without it. Your children's inheritance may come to them sooner. And unfortunately, there's probably way too many of us in here that know somebody that's been seriously injured from anhydrous. Makes finding earthworms more of a challenge than catching fish. And the thing with earthworms, if you go out in the field and you don't see any of them, that's the soil biology that you can see with your eyes. If you don't see the big guys, guess how many little guys you have? Not very damn many of them either. Keeps your sinuses open. Adds danger and excitement to a job that could be safe and boring. And one of them things, I, uh, we used to be anhydrous. And Ray Ross had come to my farm, and I was all excited. I had a root pit dug. And old Ray pulls a pocket knife out, and he starts digging. He gets down there about eight inches, and there's literally a shelf. It looks like I took a piece of plywood and wedged into the side of that soil profile. He gets down there and he wipes it off and he takes his water and sets it on that shelf. He says, well, he says, I see you're still running anhydrous. And from that second, I knew I would never, ever allow anhydrous on one of my farms again. 
That's what it does. That's why they made runways out of it. It kills the biology. It knocks out the calcium. Basically sterilizes the soil. You hit it a bunch of times with a disc and a rolling packer, you got yourself a runway. If you don't believe me, just you know, talk to somebody that was in the military. Um, great way to cool off your afternoon refreshment. I don't know how many of you guys have done that. Anybody done that other than me? Take your can of Pepsi and just... <laughs> it will cool her off real quick. Don't pick it up right away. <laughs> Trust me on that. Don't pick it up right away. It's colder than you think it is. It will stick to your fingers. And ultimately, cheap source of nitrogen. And I always hear that. Yeah, but it's cheap. How cheap is it? It's killing your biology. Period. If you don't believe it kills biology, run down to the co-op, do that maybe at intermission, suck on a hose for one second, come back and tell us how that worked out for you. Because guess what? You are big biology. If it's toxic and deadly to us, it's toxic and deadly to them soil microbes. We are just big biology. And by all means, don't do that. But you get, the, get where I'm going with that. It, it's, it's not cheap, guys. That's some of the reason we've got the compaction issues. That's, that's a lot of the problems we have. The other thing nitri- anhydrous does, it blows out calcium. It just knocks it out. It blows out its soil profile. So... I, like I say, anhydrous, in my opinion, anhydrous and strip-till do not fit. The, the chance of volatility, killing germination, the toxicity of it, um, we're trying to help that soil. Anhydrous don't help it. It's just cheap. And I always say, you know, if cheaper is better, how many of you drove here in a Yugo? That's the cheapest damn vehicle on the road. No, we want a King Ranch. We want the best thing you can set on wheels. But when it gets to fertilizer, I'll take that crap that you can give me for 10 cents for 20 gallons. Because it don't matter, it's just fertilizer, right? We gotta quit thinking that way. Another one I really don't like, potassium chloride, 0060. The problem with potassium chloride, in a soil test, we need about four to eight pounds per top six and three quarter inches of soil of chloride. That's all we need, about five pounds. Every time we come in with 100 pounds of 0060, we're applying 47 pounds of chloride. Why would we do that? Because the industry hasn't told us not to. That'd be the same as me getting up here and telling guys, you know, we're running 160 pounds of of nitrogen, but I think you should go to 1,600 pounds and see what happens. You guys would laugh me off stage and probably beat me up in the hallway. But you're doing it with chloride every year and don't think anything of it. It is that toxic. Some of the soil labs use 0060 to get a measurement of humus because it flushes it out of the soil. They just top dress a whole bunch of it on the soil and boom, they got measurements of humus. Earthworms, 71113. That's why we want them. That's the analysis of earthworm turds, 71113. Thank you, Bill, for your provocative discussion on combining conventional methods with outside-the-box thinking to build a successful strip-till operation. A big takeaway for me from today's program is the importance of listening to what plants are telling strip-tillers. Energizing root growth with elements like carbon, sugars, and even caffeine 
are examples Bill used to emphasize the value of looking beyond nutrient staples like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Crunching the numbers on what may seem like unusual applications can increase nutrient uptake and are often worth it. Bill explained and recommended his economic approach to making multiple sugar applications as both a food source for plants and a biological breakdown enhancer of residue. Well, again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Thurston Manufacturing, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program. So feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or the Google Play Store and get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting farms today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. And finally, don't forget to mark your calendar to attend the fourth annual National Striptillage Conference, which will be held August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Look for more information and updates on the conference at www.striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on November 23rd for the next episode in our 2016 podcast series, The Do's and Don'ts of Fertilizer Banding, where Purdue University agronomy professor Tony Vine will discuss recent research on the benefits of banded fertilizer applications in strip-till and some best practices for routinely reaching the root zone with nutrients. For Bill Darrington, Thurston Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Samlicka. Thanks for listening.